Turn to page 866 in the Church Bibles or the Book of Jude in the New Testament in your own Bibles. We're going to begin reading in just a moment from verse 8, although our interest is essentially verse 11 this morning. And while you're turning there, I just want to welcome everyone again and um, on this Palm Sunday, which begins Holy Week, and I want to tag along to one of the announcements about our, our monthly prayer service. What a wise way to spend Holy Week on the Lord's Day night than to be in God's house praying. So it's just a, a wonderful reminder. These are, this is a unique time for the life of Jesus' church, Holy Week, and um, the church gets more attention, good or bad, in many different ways via media and other places. So we need to pay attention to that and be mindful of that. So in light of that, again, I invite you to come to our prayer service this evening beginning at 6 o'clock. Okay, Jude chapter 1 verse 8. In the very same way these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Christ, body of Moses, excuse me, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's era. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Verse 12, these men or these people are blemishes at your love feast. Verse 16, these men are people, are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together as we so often do because we need to and seek the help that we need from our God and our Father. Well, Father, with our Bibles open before us this morning, we do humbly pray for the help of the Holy Spirit that we might listen and speak and understand and to believe the Bible and therefore be able to live in light of its eternal truth. Help us to this end and Father as we begin this holy week may we understand you more clearly. May we please love you more dearly and follow you more nearly. And we ask this in the name of the one who suffered and died in our place for our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in 2007, Gordon MacDonald wrote the book, Ordering Your Private World. It had immediate impact on the Christian community and what seemed like just overnight, it became an instant Christian classic. And one of the things that he pointed out in his book was that every one of us live in two worlds, one public and one private. So we have a front stage and a backstage element to our lives. The front stage is our public world, and it consists of all the visible things we do in the public eye, whether it be going to work, going to church, sports, meetings, meals, leisure time, friendships, even to an extent our social media habits, everything people are able to observe about us That is our public life. By contrast, our private life, our backstage, is what the people don't see. And in these private areas, there we keep hidden 
which in some cases is good and in other cases not so good, we eventually feed our public persona. And in his book, one of the things Gordon McDonald said was is that there is a danger in withholding the proper care of the inner life for if that life is unkept and unchecked, eventually our private life, our backstage life, will go public with all the horrible effects of our neglect. In other words, to quote John Lennon, I, I said it was, it was Bob Dylan, but I was corrected, and, and the person that corrected me was correct. John Lennon said this, <laughs> the one thing that we can't hide is when we're crippled inside. So we can hide it for a time, which is why when we read our Bibles and we consider history, current history, and ancient history, most of the time when people go rogue, or families, if you would, go rogue, it's way past middle age. Because a corrupt inner life cannot be hidden forever, especially if we're Christian and remain unrepentive about such things. Well, in the verses that we read of from the slave of Jesus Christ, Jude, we learn that in the circumstances that Jude is writing to, these spiritual deceivers, these false teachers, those with false professions of faith, who have, verse 4a, if your Bible is open, who have secretly slipped into Christ's church, they don't really care much about their public or private persona because here we find that they are public in their unbelief, public in their ungodly, ugly behavior, and they're very public in the rejection of God's authority in his church. So much so that Jude is able to write to his leaders and says, here are the genuine marks that, that mark these deceivers. And, and as we said last week, we say again this week, this is not Jude's personal opinion. These are God-given marks, so we need to pay attention to them. However, the church that he writes to is either asleep or theological, theologically slow or just so sure of themselves, so much so that they can't see these deceivers. Therefore, what they need is what Jude gives them, an authoritative voice to wake them, and they need the gospel of Jesus Christ to guide them. And so when it comes to these deceivers, there's this clear sense as you read them, and, and again, having spent so much time in this book as of late, as I think through these verses, they are just so brazen. They are so assertive. And that's one of the marks of these deceivers. They just, they're so confident in themselves, there's no way they can be wrong. So they're reckless with their words. They're reckless with the care of others in God's church. And, and whatever degree their private self was kept Unchecked or kept hidden, they've arrived at the place apparently in their existence where essentially to them all the world is a stage. They have the starring role, so, so if you would, get out of their way. And their behavior is so apparent to Jude that he's able to warn the church, which again is so dull in these things, he warns them of these marks that mark these deceivers. So we said last time one of the marks that mark these deceivers in their unbelief, verse 8 is that they reject the authority of Scripture. You see it there again. If your Bible is open, they replace uh, the authority of Christ and His Word with dreams, prophetic visions, to which they say God has spoken to them authoritatively. And the vision or the inner voice or the leadings is their moral authority for all their actions. Even if their actions contradict the Scripture, it doesn't matter to them. In their minds, those dreams are bigger than the Bible. So much so that they pollute their own bodies. And my wife has a wonderful app on her iTouch. It's called the Sleepmeister app. Do not do anything right now, please. 
And so one of the things it does, it, it tells you how good you're sleeping at night and gives a percentage of your efficiency in your sleep. But another thing that it does, it actually records noises that you would make that set the thing off so maybe six, seven, eight times through the, eve or the night you hear yourself. So one of the fun things that we do in the morning is we get the thing out and push the button and we listen to what Nicole has said through the night just in case, you know? Just in case Nicole wants to get rid of 500 pounds of metal. <laughs> Put them in the box out there. So, so these deceivers, uh, their bodies, the devil's playground. They pollute their bodies. There's no, verse 4, there's no moral law to break. And so if there's no moral law to break, then there's no grace to be needed. So they reject the authority of scriptures. They reject the authority of leaders. In other words, it's clear. They have an unquenchable desire for power. They, they want to have their hand in everything. And they want to have the final say in everything. And Jude says, beware of people like this because verse 9 even the holy archangel michael wouldn't act like that that when he was disputing with the devil about the body of moses even the angel did not dare condemn the devil i mean if anybody could have condemned the devil it could have been the archangel michael by way of slander but instead he said the lord rebuke you in other words the lord will judge this and the point here is this even the chief angel michael wouldn't let the take the law into his own hands as these deceivers do and so these deceivers, they bypass all the established lines of authority, not by mistake, but by intent. And they think, as, as postmodern men and women so often do, that my ill-informed, my self-assertive utterances at the expense of truth, whether it's known or unknown, is my right. And therefore, what I have to say is by necessity legitimate, thereby making every thought that they have not only unchecked, but on par with God. Hence, they're their boldness. Now, I suspect these deceivers would be the kind of people in the local church who are certain that they have the lowdown on everyone's spiritual condition. You know, no, no matter where they get their info from, who knows, but they, they're certain that they know about the spiritual condition of everyone. And I suspect they'd be horrible listeners in public worship because the pride in their life would say, you know, I don't really need to know these things. I already know this. I have my dreams and so forth. But again, we go back to the archangel Michael. He doesn't even do this. Listen, he doesn't say what he wants to say to, to the devil, but he says what he's told to say. And he calls on the authority of the Lord God and not himself. But again, not so the false teachers. They think they know. Verse 10, these people speak abusively about whatever they do not understand. And, and so if you have a person who thinks that they're the final authority... If they think so highly of themselves, if they're boasting, verse 16, about themselves, if that's that person, well, then you can just, you know, wax elegantly about anything, can't you? Even though you don't really know what you're talking about, and you don't really know what you should know. Hence the reference to these people like animals. So these deceivers live by the law of the jungle then. And they're out for themselves. They refuse to submit to God's authority, which he has established. They refuse to submit to the moral law, which God has established. They refuse to believe that obedience in these things is what God desires. So, so instead of responding to what they do not understand by investigation and question as, as a reasonable person would, these deceivers respond by slander and rebellion. 
And therefore the Bible says they invite destruction. Verse 10b, these are the very things that destroy them. Now in my readings this week, I came across a wonderful quote from John Stott. I thought it was very humble, and I think it's something we all need to take note of. And this is what he said. A Christian is one who possesses a submissive spirit and has a reasonable, rational resolve to believe and obey whatever scripture may be found to teach. They are committed to the scriptures in advance, whatever it may be found to say. This means that when we come across a Christian doctrine that we find difficult to grasp or a passage of the Bible that we find hard to reconcile with other passages, we assume that there's an intelligent solution to the problem and when we understand it clearly, we shall obey it unconditionally. So, so instead of speaking abusively on things the Christian may not understand, the Christian approaches things in the Christian life, and so in the life of the church, not with animalistic rages or a low-brain know-it-all mentality or even rebel action, but they approach it with a submissive mind. Because, and here's the key, because the Christian wants everyone, not just themselves, they want everyone to get things right. And that then takes us to our three examples in verse 11 that serve to underpin what we've just said here in verses 8, 9, and 10. And again, Jude's a good preacher. Three examples. He draws from the Old Testament, right? What do we say around here about the Old Testament? It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. So we need our Old Testaments because the New Testament relies much on the Old Testament to drive its truth home. And so it's no surprise here. Verse 11, woe to them, Jude writes. Woe to them. This is the language of Jesus Christ to the Pharisees. This is the language of the prophets. This is the language of pronouncing an ultimate judgment. On these deceivers. Woe to them. How horrible it will be. Well, why? Well, they've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's era. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. And so as we look through these examples, we'll just work them one by one in the remainder of the time that we have. So they have taken the way of Cain. Well, Cain is the first son of Adam and Eve. Cain was the first murderer in the human race. So he had a wonderful start. Firstborn, wonderful, horrible, excuse me, ending. First murderer. He killed his own brother Abel because of, of a jealousy, essentially, over a sacrifice. Abel sacrificed some of his firstborn flock of sheep to the Lord. Cain offered some of the vegetables from his garden to the Lord. The Lord accepted the animal or, or the Abel's sacrifice of animal. And the Lord rejected Cain's offering. And Genesis 4, 5 says this. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. In other words, he was angry and depressed. And that's what sin does. Sin will make us angry and sin will make us depressed. He became angry and depressed because he got it wrong and his brother got it right. Now, the simple thing would, to do would have been to do what is right and do what his brother did because his brother's offerings please God. So he could have been happy about his brother's success and he could have enjoyed the same success simply by doing things right. However, what becomes clear is that before Cain ever took Abel out to the field and murdered him, he had a little talk with Jesus. He had a talk with the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, translated Kyrios in some copies of the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. That's why I just want to make that point clear. 
And why this conversation is so important is this. Cain had gotten the law of God wrong when it came to the kind of worship God desired. And Cain learned that he couldn't worship God and approach God any way he liked. So before he became angry and before he murders, God had said, listen, don't be sad. Don't be angry. Just do what's right. Do what's right and you'll be fine. I'll accept your offering because it'll be the kind of offering I call for because I'm God and believe me, I know how I like to be worshipped. But then Genesis 4, 7 says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So you have this decisive moment for Cain. It's almost as if God is saying, Cain, are you going to be an unbeliever? And not believe what I've said about worship. Will you be unruly, Cain? Will you be lawless? Are you going to go your own way, Cain? Or will you humble yourself and listen to what I desire? And I'm sure most of you know how things went. He goes his own way. And because he can't stand it, he reveals that he no, has no love for his brother. And so if he has no real for his brother, then he has no real love for God. Well, who says? Well, 1 John 4.20 says... Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So if there was love, as Jesus said, if you really love me, you'll obey what I command. It's just that simple. Of course, Cain did not do that. A Jewish writer on this said of Cain, he, and this is so contemporary, he was a, an example of unbelieving cynicism and mockery. And he goes on and he, and he writes as if you he, he put, put words in Cain's mouth. And he makes Cain say this, there's no judgment, there's no judge, there's no reward to come, there's no reward will be given to the righteous, and there's no destruction for the wicked. So I'll do what I like, as I like, when I like. It matters now not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scrolls. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's Cain. I can do whatever I want. It's another way of saying verse 4. Grace means I can do what I like and I have no sovereign Lord. And so then Jude marks out these deceivers who have taken the way of Cain. They know what God requires but they're decided that they are able to decide if they're going to say yes or no, if you can believe it, to Almighty God. They've decided if they're going to say yes or no to Almighty God. Now, now, of course, most deceivers in the church would not say flat out, you know, these are God's rules and I'm going to reject them. They're far more subtle than that. And they might say things like, well, that's your interpretation. Or, or this is where God is leading me. And then, therefore, turning Christianity into their own little subjective personal religion. But in their hearts, they deny that there's a right and wrong clearly given. And they deny God's written rule. And they deny God's delegated authority. And they deny God will ever judge them in these things. Why? Why do they do that? Well, they have taken the way of Cain. Now, it makes us think, doesn't it, about the importance of a proper worship, especially proper public worship, and how it matters how we come and that we come and what we do and don't do, it matters to God. Point number one, they've taken the way of Cain. Secondly, they've rushed for profit into Balaam's era. And what this comes down to essentially is that these deceivers, like Balaam, follow their own greedy 
passions. And greed, according to the Bible, is idolatry, idol worship. So these deceivers follow their own greedy passions and they imagine in their dreams that God is leading them. This is what makes subjective Christianity so darn dangerous. And God is leading me here. They dilute God's law for their own interest and they lead others into confusion because of their example. And that's what happened in Balaam's example. He's the classic example of a person who covets things for himself. His chief motivation is financial gain and all the security that would bring them and the ease it supposedly would bring them no matter what the cost, even if it costs other people their life. And that's what happens in this story. So the true story goes like this. Balaam was hired, and you can read this in Numbers 22, 23, 4, and 5, uh, Numbers 31, Revelation 2, 14, believe it or not. And you have to read your whole Bible to get this story. So he, Balaam was hired by our king, Balak, to curse the people of God. So Balak is king. He saw the Israelites as a threat militarily to him. And so he's a wise king in some ways. He gets prophetic power. Balaam is a Gentile prophet. He's a bit torn. Should I go to Balak and get the gold and lay down the curse? Or should I obey God and help God's people? So he's torn between obeying God and his own personal greed. So he argues with God. He argues with the angel of the Lord. And he even argues with a donkey. Right? Because it takes one to know one. But eventually he goes and he gives a blessing instead of a curse to the Israelites. So, so Balak's plot is foiled and everything seems good. And you don't hear about him for a while until you keep reading on a bit further and we discover that Balaam had been to something, up to something very, very evil. And all along, he's been misleading the people of God. He, he taught them about breaking God's law, and he led them into an immoral lifestyle. And so all the while, you find out, Revelation 2.14, that, that he's actually helping Balak achieve his evil in a different way, and he's gaining financially because of it. And so at the end of the day, we find in Balaam a person who, when faced with a very clear statement from God about God's intention and decrees, he decided that God didn't mean it, and he determined that he didn't care about it. And so in his greed, he wanted gold, not God, and he really didn't care about the number of people who would die with him because of his evil ways. And so he is one of the classic warnings from the Bible of how greed can lead us into rebellion and then death. So I want you to listen to your Bibles. 1 Timothy 6. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, they are conceited and they understand nothing. Verse 5. They are those who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we, should be, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, not just themselves, but other people. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And here's the sad part. Some people eager for money and the ease and security that it supposedly brings that they wander from the faith and they pierce themselves with many griefs. Now this isn't a judgmental statement. This is just reality. I, in my own ministry, 18 years and counting, 
I've seen that happen. You see, Balaam's faith, like Cain's, was shipwrecked. Balaam's faith was shipwrecked as he pursued his own personal agenda and he didn't pursue God's glory. He abused every good thing that God had given him for his own ease, his own pleasure, all for now. So when you go on and read about Balaam in the Old Testament, he's mentioned in Joshua 13, 22. He's on a list. It's not a good list. It's a bad list. It's a list of people who were slain and never entered the promised land because of their unbelief. Unbelievers. But believers are patient. They, they know that there's a better life coming. And the life on earth is only a preparation for the life to come. And they know that what they do today will be mattering for all eternity because it always has. So the believer lives life now on earth in light of the then of heaven. That's why Jesus said what he said in Matthew 16, 25. It's still true. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What did Balaam want to do? He wanted to save his life in a greedy way. But whoever loses their life for my sake, says Jesus, they'll find it. One of the leaders in the Anglican church a number of years ago wrote a commentary, and this is his take on that verse. Only he or she who is detached from themselves can commit themselves to others. It's perfect, right? Only he or she who is detached from themselves can commit themselves to others. Balaam could not do this. He was manipulative, he was selfish, and he fed only himself. And again, Jude warns the church, these deceivers will follow their own greedy passions, and they will pretend like God is leading them, and they will dilute the law of God to their own interests, and they'll lead others into confusion because of their example. Now, in 2 Peter, Peter says the, almost the exact same thing about Balaam in his, in his letter. In fact, he has another line that says that these deceivers are experts at greed. Highly skilled, highly motivated at being selfish in such a way that almost no one can see it. Hence the warning that Jude gives. Cain's era. He didn't believe God. He didn't behave as God required self-rule. Balaam's era. His God was gold, and in his greed, he was willing to do most anything to get it selfish, and it didn't matter how many people he would take with them. And if you read that list in Joshua, it was an awful lot of people that Balaam took with him for his own, because of his own little greedy heart. Finally, these deceivers, verse 11, had be, have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. And here we are, our third Old Testament story, again from Numbers, this time chapter 16, where verse 1 says, Korah, thinking that God's uh, chosen ministry team of Moses and Aaron had gone too far and they weren't right, Korah, verse 1, became insolent. In other words, he became disrespectful. The Hebrew word for insolent is that he had this idea and he took himself forward, a confrontation. Here we go, bring it on, Moses and Aaron. And so as you read on in the story, Korah wanted power and he wanted position and he wanted it then. He regarded himself as Lord of all. And so he began to make godlike statements. He was struggling with God's theology. Listen, Korah, Moses is God's man. Moses and, and, and Aaron are my chosen leaders. Back off. He was struggling with God's theology. He was struggling with God's providence. He wasn't willing to wait for God's salvation. So he becomes impatient. 
You know how it goes. Or things are not right here. They're taking far too long. And someone needs to come in and fix this. In fact, if you read Numbers 6, 14, it's harder to see it in the English. You see it clearly in the Hebrew. It's almost as he screams at Moses, I want honey now. Honey was one of the promises of the promised land. He's like, I can't wait anymore. I want it now. So as you read the story in Numbers 16, you'll find that he questions Moses' authority and his integrity, and then he begins to instigate, God help him, the mutiny. 250 men, grumblers, fault finders, Moses and Aaron. Now, now on one level, you say, well, look, of course you have something to grumble about. You're in the desert. You You guys made a mistake a while back, and you've been here far longer than you should have been. Okay, you're in the desert. Life's not great in the desert. We understand that. It wasn't a bed of roses, but they were not called to live in a bed of roses. They were called to follow God in faith to that promised land. Uh, There's great symbolism here for the Christian. So a promised land is not here, it's there. And this is not always a bed of roses. I mean, we need to be patient in adversity and to be thankful and not have bravado statements in our, in our prosperity. So they weren't called to a bed of roses. They needed to live a life of faith. And Kor's problem was that he abused his influence. He abused his influence. And now if you think about the deceivers in the church, essentially that's what they do. Whether they're in the church or right on the fringes, their problem is that they think far too highly of themselves. And as John Stott said, all division can be traced back to one's own lust. All division in the church can be traced back to one's own lust. People who are not content with their position or with their influence will eventually break ranks. And they will eventually stir trouble. And so in this, Korah felt he could judge others. He had no respect for them. Moses and Aaron had no respect for them. And he had no respect that God had set them above him. Above, in role. Not in status, but in role. And of course, Korah couldn't stand that. And immediately he begins to instigate rebellion. There comes a standoff. It was short-lived. God shows up. God intervenes in the whole thing and God takes Korah and his 250 followers. Essentially, God sucked them in the earth. The earth opens up. The earth swallows them up. And the writer says there, all their possessions as well. Everything they own covered by the earth, they perished never to be heard of in their rebellion again. And I was thinking this week, I wonder what his last words were because he just didn't die immediately. He died in the earth covered him and so it took a little time I wonder what his last thoughts were maybe is a better way to say it was he saying oh oh I wonder what the promised land would be like I, I don't think so oh the food the honey was he thinking about the honey I don't think so was he thinking you know I showed him thank goodness someone stood up to Moses I completely doubt it because Korah denied that Moses could even speak for God and teach him God's truth he was certain that he knew better he was certain he was right One of the most horrible things that I've ever experienced in pastoral ministry at someone's grave or bedside is a person defiant in their unbelief in Jesus Christ. It's the saddest thing, it's the scariest thing that you'll ever experience. I mean, you're seconds away from your death. And you can't humble yourself to say, maybe Jesus is right. I mean, I see death is coming, I see my sin, I know it. Korah, the rebel... 
So, so Jude writes, essentially, God will take care of them. That's verse 11, isn't it? They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. That's written in the past tense. In other words, if you would, this is, a, this is kind of a, a prophetic certainty in the most cleanest and truest of ways. These people will be destroyed. These deceivers will be destroyed. It's guaranteed. I'm not sure if this helps. So this is a quote from John, James Moffat. He writes in the 20th century, these high-flying teachers of the inner light who claim that their private revelations were above criticism naturally disclaimed the right of anyone to guide or rule them and again resented the opposition of the church leaders to their views. And there you have it. Three more marks that, that mark a deceiver. We looked at Cain. Cain, when he was faced with a clear statement from God about how God is to be worshipped, he determined that God did not mean it and he didn't want to do it. We looked at Balaam. Balaam was selfish, self-serving in all his ways and he determined that either God couldn't see him nor God would judge him. And again, he leads a great number of people astray in his disobedience. And then we looked at Korah, who thought much more highly of himself than he should have. He misleads others, and he takes them to their immediate destruction. So if you think, they, they, they have no faith in God. These three have no faith in God. They have way too high of a view of themselves. They have no respect for God's leaders, and they were greedy. No faith in God, too, too high thoughts of themselves, no respect for God's leaders, and they were greedy. And Jude says, church, those are the marks that mark a deceiver. Now, as you think about these punishments, there's something that we can't overlook. These three men, each of their punishments, if you would, kind of build on top of each other. Cain. How did Cain die? Well, he kind of wandered away to his own end. How did Balaam die? Well, Balaam died in battle. Well, how did Korah die? Well, Korah destroyed immediately by God. It's the hardest word in the Greek that one can use about being destroyed. Apollanto is the word. They were unbelievers. They weren't saved. And you see, loved ones, the salvation that God gives his people in Christ is a salvation that gives them a new heart and a new mind and a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 26, and 7. And I will put my spirit in you. And Ezekiel's talking here of the new covenant. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and cause you to be careful to obey my rules. You see, that's the new heart. That's a new heart that has a heart for God, a heart for Christ a heart for humanity, a heart for the church, a heart for the Bible, and a heart that is not sold out to itself as these three men had hearts that were. And as we close, we'd have to be completely blind to think that in general, in the church of Jesus Christ, these kinds of people do not exist. So you have to ask yourself the question, and why is this so? Why do these people exist in the church of Jesus Christ? Well, I put down some thoughts. They run right alongside Jude, and here they are. Number one, the church has no real clear understanding of the gospel. No one's contending or elevating the gospel as the first thing in everything 
or the church is built essentially on personal convictions and institutionalized ways of thinking. So if, if you fit in, then you're in. If you don't fit in, you're out and nothing more. So the church has a low view of truth, a low view of sin, a low view of duty, not for salvation, but because of inherent in salvation, they have a low view of leaders. They have a low view of correct public worship. You can come in and out any way you like. But the church has an extremely high view of itself. And they're not paying attention to the things which matter most. But thank God, God said, verse 4, these kinds of people, these deceivers, their condemnation was written about long ago. And the warning is on one level clear, another level encouraging, but also if you're a deceiver, it's very devastating. No deceiver will be able to deceive forever. Just this last week, Pastoral ministry, a man in pastoral ministry at another church in another place, 30 years. 30 years. He had to leave. He had to leave because apparently he was a deceiver. Now, loved ones, listen and and hear your master call. If you are a deceiver, if you're here and you're a deceiver, your reign of terror will come to an end. It's inevitable. But God would have you to know that you can just stop those things. Just stop those things and repent and live a new life in Jesus Christ. In fact, thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together and pray. God and Father, I find myself quickly thinking of C.S. Lewis, as he said, if we continue in love for Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with us. And that is so simple, but it is so true. If we continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with us. We'll be more unlikely to cause trouble, to be deceived or to become a deceiver. We have the guidance of Jesus from his word to teach us how we should live. We have the heart, the new heart that Jesus gave us so that we want to believe and we want to behave. Not always, we understand that. But at the end of the day, when we repent, we repent and we believe. And so, Father, we pray that you would guide, regard us from these deceivers. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours today for all who believe. In Christ's name. Amen. Please stand.